okay? And I hope you've been enjoying these, uh, these studies. I've really been enjoying it. So uh, that's, that's a start, because if I don't enjoy it, I'm sure you're not going to enjoy it. But uh, I've been enjoying these, uh, these uh, studies that we've been doing, and today we're going to go through um, Zechariah. Now, Zechariah is a very interesting book, a little complicated, and so I've got a video that's longer than I wish it is. However, it's really helpful. At least it was to me. And so if you will bear with me, we're going to watch this video together, and it'll help you to understand what you're reading when you read Zechariah. Did you read Zechariah this week, or are you going to do it next week? Okay, so let's, uh, let's take a look at this video, and then we'll get right into it. The book of the prophet Zechariah. The book is set after the return of the exiles from Babylon to Jerusalem. And we're told in the book of Ezra that Zechariah and Haggai together challenged and motivated the people to rebuild the temple and look for the fulfillment of God's promises. Now, long ago, Jeremiah the prophet had said that Israel's exile would last for 70 years and that afterwards God would restore his presence to a new temple and bring his kingdom and the rule of the Messiah over all nations. The dates at the beginning of this book tell us that those 70 years are almost up. But life back in the land was hard, and it seemed like none of these promises were going to come true. Why? And the book of Zechariah offers an explanation. It has a fairly clear design. There's an introduction which sets the tone for a large collection of Zechariah's dream visions. And that's concluded by chapters 7 and 8. And then this is followed by two more large collections of poetry and prophecy. Let's just dive in and see how the book works. It begins with Zechariah's challenge to his generation to turn back to God and not be like their ancestors who rebelled and refused to listen to the earlier prophets, which landed them in exile. And so now the returned exiles respond positively to Zechariah. They repent and humble themselves before God, or so it seems. The next large section is a collection of eight nighttime visions that Zechariah experienced. And just to prepare you, these are full of very bizarre, strange images, a lot like your dreams. The idea that God communicates to people through symbolic dreams, it's very old. It goes back to the book of Genesis. The dreams of Jacob or Joseph or Pharaoh, these gave meaning to current events at the time, but they also gave a window into the future. And so Zechariah has his own dreams now, and they've been arranged in this really cool symmetrical design. The first and the last visions are about four horsemen each. They're like rangers patrolling the world on God's behalf, and it's a representation of God's attentive watch over the nations. Their report is that the world is at peace. And in Zechariah's day, this refers to how God raised up Persia to conquer Babylon and bring peace. And so the question now arises, the 70 years of Israel's exile are almost up. Is now the time for the Messianic kingdom in Jerusalem? And God responds by saying that he's determined to fulfill those promises, but he leaves the question of timing unanswered. The second and seventh visions are paired because they're both reflections on Israel's past sin that led up to the exile. So the second vision is about these horns that symbolize the nations that attacked and then scattered Israel, Assyria and Babylon, by a group of blacksmiths, an image for Persia. The seventh dream is about a woman in a basket, and we're told that she's a symbol of the centuries of Israel's covenant rebellion. And then this woman is carried off to Babylon by other women who carry the basket flying with stork wings. This is so strange. 
The third and sixth visions are paired as they're both about the rebuilding of a new Jerusalem. So a man is measuring the city. It's an image of God's promise that Jerusalem will be rebuilt and become a beacon to the nations who will join God's people in worship. And then the sixth dream is about a scroll that flies around the new Jerusalem, punishing thieves and liars. The idea being that the new Jerusalem is a place that's purified from sin by the scriptures. The fourth and fifth visions are at the center of this collection, and they're about the two key leaders among the returned exiles. So Joshua, the high priest, and then Zerubbabel, the royal descendant of David. So Joshua had been symbolically wearing Israel's sin in the form of these dirty clothes, but then those are taken off, and he's given new clothes and a new turban, a symbol of God's grace and forgiveness. And then an angel tells Joshua that if he remains faithful to God, he will lead his people, and Joshua will become a symbol of the future messianic king. The other vision is about two olive trees that supply oil to this elaborate gold lamp, which itself is a symbol of God's watchful eye over his people. And these two trees symbolize the two anointed leaders, Joshua and then Zerubbabel, who's leading the temple rebuilding efforts. And God says that success will not come to this new temple if it's the result only of political maneuvering. Rather, these two leaders must be dependent upon the work of God's spirit. The visions come to a close with a bonus vision from the prophet, and it picks up the themes of the central fourth and fifth visions. It's Joshua, the high priest again, and he's given a crown and presented as a symbol of the future Messiah, who will also be a priest over God's kingdom. And then Zechariah closes it all out, saying that all of these visions will be fulfilled only if the current generation is faithful to God and obeys the terms of the covenant. And so altogether, these three visions emphasize how the coming of the Messianic kingdom is conditional upon this generation being faithful to God, which leads to the conclusion of the dreams. It's another challenge from Zechariah, and a group of Israelites come, and they've been mourning over the former temple's destruction for nearly 70 years. And they ask him, is it time to stop grieving? I mean, is God's kingdom going to come very soon? And Zechariah again reminds them of how their ancestors rejected God's call through the prophets, which led to the exile. And so he challenges them too. He says, this generation will see the messianic kingdom only if they pursue justice and peace and remain faithful to the covenant. So in other words, Zechariah reverses their question. He asks, are you going to become the kind of people who are ready to receive and participate in God's coming kingdom? And that question is left just hanging there. The people don't answer, and the book just moves on. And so we come to the final sections that are very different from chapters 1 to 8. Each section is a kaleidoscopic collage of poems and images about the future messianic kingdom. So the first one, chapters 9 to 11, describe the coming of the humble messianic king who's riding a donkey into the new Jerusalem to establish God's kingdom over the nations. But then, all of a sudden, this king, he's symbolized as a shepherd over the flock of Israel, and then he's rejected first by his own people, but then also by their leaders who are also symbolized as shepherds. And so God hands Israel over to these corrupt shepherds. And it raises the question, will Israel's rejection of their king last forever? In the final section, chapters 12 to 14, say no. It's another mosaic of poems and images about the future messianic kingdom. And they depict the new Jerusalem as a place where God's justice will finally confront and defeat evil among the nations. It's very similar to the same themes in Prophet Joel or Ezekiel. 
But then God also will confront the rebellion within the hearts of his own people. He's going to pour out his spirit on them, he says, so that they can repent and grieve over the fact that they have rebelled and rejected their messianic shepherd. The final chapter concludes with the new Jerusalem as the gathering point for all of the nations. And then this city becomes a new Garden of Eden, and there's a river of living water flowing out of the temple, bringing healing to all of creation, and that's how the book ends. And so Zechariah just leaves you to ponder the connection between chapters 1 through 8 and 9 to 14. And the point seems to be that this future messianic kingdom of the book's second half will only come when God's people are faithful to the covenant the point of the first half. Reading the book of Zechariah is a wild ride. These visions and poems are full of startling imagery and they do not follow a linear flow of thought. And that's part of the point. It's like history and our lives. It doesn't always fit into neat orderly patterns. But the prophets offer us glimpses of God's hand at work, guiding history towards his own purposes. And so ultimately, Zechariah invites us to look above the chaos and hope for the coming of God's kingdom, which should motivate faithfulness in the present. And that's what the book of Zechariah is all about. (sighs) It's exhausting. You know, if I tried to do that, I'd still be talking about 3 o'clock this afternoon. So that's why I did that for your sake. Now, if you, what I'm going to do, I was thinking about that just as I was sitting. I'm going to put this uh, link on our Facebook page. Okay? Now, I'd like to ask you, if, if you're on Facebook, and you know, you may not admit it, but you probably are. Uh, what I'd like you to do is like our church page and get in the habit of sharing almost everything that you think is okay off of our Facebook page. That will help you evangelize to all of the people that you know and help our churches sort of reach, expand. And so we can, you know, just from just from our iPhones, we can evangelize. But I'm going to have this on our Facebook page. God willing, it'll be up there by the end of the day. If you don't do Facebook and won't do Facebook, go to uh, YouTube. Don't go to Google. Go to YouTube and then put in Zechariah and you'll find this pretty quick. Okay, if you go to Google, you might find one, in fact, for every book of the Bible. And uh, you've seen, I think, bits of that before. Okay, now listen, I am going to jump halfway through my message because uh, that's just what time it is. But there, there's uh, some quotations from Zechariah. I'm on slide number five, Phoebe. Uh, quotations from the book of Zechariah in the New Testament and they're all sort of messianic prophecies. And it starts off, I'm just going to mention uh, seven of them. The, the fact that Jesus was riding a donkey in Ch- Jerusalem was prophesied many hundred years prior, prior to the fact that he did it. Who knew? Who could have imagined that? The price, the horrible price of, of the betrayal of Jesus Christ, the 30 pieces of silver, was also prophesied by Zechariah. And the fact that Jesus was pierced when he was on the cross, that was also prophesied by Zechariah. The fact that he was considered a shepherd, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, but he was also a kingly priest. These are all images from the book of Zechariah. The fact that Jesus said, I'm going to build my church, uh, again, is, is part of that. And the fact that Jesus, of course, is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he's the Lord of history, that is also the big theme from Zechariah. In fact, 
That is what Zechariah is primarily a part. It's the, the theme of the book is that, that God is overall, that God is at work with all the confusion. And you look around the world today, there's a lot of confusion. Oh, by the way, you can take a photo if you want of these people, and people do that and are doing that. But we also will have sermon slides up on Tuesday. Uh, most weeks we have the message, the recording of the message, and the sermon slides are usually up on our website by about Tuesday. So you can look for these slides if you want to. Uh, but feel free to just take a photo if you like to. It's not a problem. Uh, the highlight or the theme that I really felt from the Lord that is a message for us today is uh, right in the center of the book in chapter 4 and verse 6. And if you remember the context, as you just heard through that little video clip, uh, the context of this book is that there's messages to the rebuilders of the temple in the book of Ezra. And uh, that is that is the... What the, what the book of Ezra is pretty much about is the return from Babylon and the rebuilding of the temple that was destroyed by the Babylonians. And right in the center of this is this scripture that we quote so very often, and this is where it's found in Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 6. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Now, I love saying Zerubbabel just because it's fun. So let's say it out loud together. Zerubbabel. Oh, come on. Don't be shy. Zerubbabel. Isn't that great? That's a guy. Can you imagine? And what do they call him? Like, what do his buddies call him? Zeri or Bubble or, what? you know, Floater or whatever they would call him. Uh, Zerubbabel, Floater, you know, Bubbles float. Anyways, they were doing something that was very natural, very ordinary in some ways. I mean, it was an extraordinary thing they were doing. But, you know, the fact of... You know, the actual work that was entailed in rebuilding the temple was putting stones and bricks and mortar and lumber and a building project. And, you know, some of us are handier than others. And, uh, you know, you might be a builder. You might have known someone who's a builder. You might have tried cutting a board with a saw and found out it's not as easy as they make it look on those shows on TV. And, uh, you know, these guys were doing something just kind of normal. They were, you know, some of us here are truck drivers and some of you, uh, you know, I was, I was thinking about some of the things I was doing this week. I found myself cleaning a bathroom and I found myself uh, doing dishes and, uh, you know, we, we do all kinds of different things. I didn't have a hammer in my hand this week, but, uh, you know, we all do things throughout our lives that are just sort of normal, just everyday things. And Zerubbabel was basically in charge of building, rebuilding this temple. And it wasn't sort of a spiritual church-like activity. And the word of the Lord that came to Zerubbabel was this. Not by the strength of your arm, not by the smarts in your head, but it's by the spirit that this is going to be accomplished. And so the word of the Lord that came and comes from this book is to understand that throughout all history, God is at work and he's at work in your life tomorrow morning. And he's at work in our lives day by day, moment by moment. And the desire that God has for us 
The reason that he came is because he wants to know us and he wants us to know him. That is his very important purpose and passion. How many times have I said it that God loves you? God knows you. He knows everything about you. He knows your PIN number at the ATM. He knows everything about you and he loves you. Now, I'll tell you what, I know a little bit about me, and I'm not that impressed, let alone you. (laughs) Just kidding. But Jesus knows you, and he loves you. You know, yesterday I was grumpy. I know you're never grumpy, but I was grumpy. A little bit hangry, I think, is what it was. But anyways, God still loves me. And God can help us change. God can help us do better. I'm going to be talking about that momentarily. But the purpose and the vision of this book is that God is at work in all of history and all around the world. He's at work in Haiti. He's at work in Malawi. He's at work in Tanzania. He's at work in Surrey. He's at work all over the place. And he wants to be at work in our lives moment by moment, day by day. And he actually is, even when we can't feel him, he's moving And God is at work in your life and mine. And it's by the power of the Holy Spirit. I just want to read something to you that I actually wrote here. It's a very natural, ordinary project, rebuilding a city, rebuilding a temple. Nothing is overly supernaturally needed or done yet. Zechariah established a spiritual principle which many believers for thousands of years have embraced as part of the normal Christian life. And that is this. We, we, we've learned some things. We know some things. And that's really good. Knowledge has increased. But we need to be people who put their hope and trust in God, being at work in our lives and living accordingly. Our trust and our hope is not in what we know and what we can do. It is our trust is in the Lord. And we just change who we're working for. You, if, you're, if, you're, if you're working this week, yeah, do a good job for your boss. Make your boss so successful. That's a key to your success. But really, let's think about, okay, I'm working for the Lord here. What I'm doing, I'm driving a truck. I'm, i got a shovel out. I'm, I'm, I'm at my computer. So many of us are working online now. But whatever we're doing, we do it for the Lord. Just change who you're working for. Come on. Okay, real quick. Now, first of all, I'm looking at my watch. It's going to be about 10 minutes late. Okay, just get your head around it. Uh, If you have an appointment, God bless you. Just don't leave angry, okay? Coffee will still be on on time. Okay, the Holy Spirit. There's four things I want to talk about the Holy Spirit before we change gears and, uh, and have our communion together. First of all, the Holy Spirit wants to make us better people. The Holy Spirit can make us better people. With the power of the Holy Spirit, we can be better people. The fruit of the Spirit in your life, come on, is love. It's joy. It's peace. It's patience. Okay, I needed that yesterday. Kindness. I needed that too. Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. Yeah, I was grumpy and gruff. I remember, Lord have mercy, self-control. There's so many things that we want in our life. We want to be better people. 
And the Holy Spirit will help us. God will help you. But it's not about, okay, I'm going to do everything I can and try really hard to be a good person, a better person, and then I'm going to ask for God's help. No, the other way around. Just flip it. Just flip it right upside down. Seek, seek the Lord. Seek His Spirit. Find a place. Find a place where you are met by God. Find a place where you can come and be in God's presence. And when I mean by place, I don't mean you have to go somewhere like the, the beach or whatever, unless you want to. That's fine. I like going to the beach too. But even when you're driving in the car, whatever you're doing, seek the Lord and he will fill you. And the fruit of the Spirit is these things. And if your experiences with God are so powerful and you're not changing into this kind of a person, perhaps your experiences are not as deep with God as you think. And everybody said, ouch, that's good. I heard, I heard an ouch. That's what, that's what I was going for there. The second thing about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will make us more satisfied people. Do you ever find yourself dissatisfied? Come on, I do. I'm alone in this quiet group. How about this scripture? He fills my life with good things and my youth is renewed like the eagles. Come on, that's a promise from heaven. The Holy Spirit wants to work in our lives. And you know what? The Bible's so clear. Contentment is a good thing. Now, God wants us to have vision. God wants us to work hard and do better and all of that. And, you know, look at, look at what happened with, with our dear sister Gladys and, and the fact that she was such a willing person to go out and work hard. She didn't just sit down in her chair and ask God to do all these things. It's, there was a partnership there, and she was a hard worker. But she, that that... That satisfaction in her own heart, what made us, what makes us satisfied in our innermost being is knowing God. Having one more, you know, one more uh, layer of, of security money-wise or, or health-wise or relationship-wise, those are all important things that God cares about. But our source of life is found in knowing God through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the only thing that will satisfy. Only the living water will satisfy in your life. Third is that God wants to make us more purposeful by the Holy Spirit. Look, being a, being a person of purpose is what gives motivation. It, it's what gives satisfaction when you fulfill your purpose, the purpose that God has for you. God has a purpose for you. He knows who you are. And you might not be like Gladys and going to overseas or going to Haiti and doing all these things. But you have a purpose. Whatever that is, God knows you and he, he knows who's in your world. And God has placed you. Maybe you're a full-time mom. You know, you got two kids and you got one and a half too many. You know, it, it, it's hard being a mom in these days. It's hard to raise a family. But that's part of your purpose, and that's a glorious purpose to feed into the next generation. God has a call on each and every one of our lives. You know, 
there's there's guys here. I know your schedule is crazy. You 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 travel to to work. You commute to work. You work too hard, and you come home, and it's too far, and you still have other things you got to do. But God has a purpose for your life. Change who you're working for. Just in your mind, just in your heart, and. God will make us more purposeful. Romans 8, it says, For all who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. Now, we've got a whole bunch of gender confusion in our world, but uh, it's a little confusing in the Bible sometimes, too. Because those sons, I looked it up in the Greek, and it's, you know what that word, the Greek word is? Sons. (laughs) But it's actually fulfilled and used as children as well. And it means women and men. It means male and female, people of God. And those people are the ones who are led by the Holy Spirit. And God will lead you. If you open your heart to him, he will speak to you. Amen. Amen. Last but not least, life change. Now, a lot of us uh, would love it if we could change as long as everything stays the same. It's not going to happen. And then we try to change and we fail. But God is the one who changes us as we, as we see his glory, as we have fellowship with him. He's the one who brings change. He loves you enough not to leave you that way. <laughs> and we're going to be changed, but not by our own strength, not by might, not by power. But by my spirit, says the Lord. And this scripture, what a powerful, wonderful promise. And here it is in 2 Corinthians 3. It says, we all. That's everybody. That's you. That's me. We all with unveiled faces reflecting the glory of the Lord. We are all being transformed into the image of God from one degree of glory to another, which is from the Lord who is the Spirit. Okay, the Holy Spirit isn't some unknown power. He's the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. The Holy Spirit is God. He's the Spirit of Christ. And uh, if you think that we have three different gods, we don't. We have one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God, and He is the Lord, and He is transforming us. And so if you can just... Go to that next slide. It's a bit of a review. Now, I'd just like you to think about this, and don't raise your hand or anything, but I want to ask you to think about this really really carefully here. And if you'll think fast, I'll be done quickly, okay? So is it, what's one of these four things are you most sort of touched by, are you most interested in, or do you feel like God is sort of, uh, God is uh, tapping you on the shoulder about? The first one is that, you know, God, the Holy Spirit will make us better people. The second one, more satisfied. Do you find yourself just being dissatisfied and ungrateful? Uh, the third one is, is having more purpose. Oh, man, this is, so, this is such a drudgery. I don't know if I can do this. Every day it's the same thing. And the kids, oh, my goodness, the kids. Or the traffic. Or the boss. Or the teacher. 
The Holy Spirit, and the, the fourth one is the transformation from the inside out. Which one of those four things are you wanting God to do something new in your life? Okay, here's the thing. We can do better. Okay, you can do better. But I'm not telling you that you need to try harder. I'm asking you to change your focus from I'm going to try my best to do better to I'm going to do what I can do to seek the things of the Spirit because the Spirit's at work in me to make me do better. And it's a kind of a funny balance but because we're involved in all of this. But I'm not asking you to try harder, for goodness sake, please. I don't think I've got another shred of energy but let's change our focus from working hard at this stuff and trying to be a better person and, and, and on, on and on it goes. I'm not going to re-preach that to focusing on the, the work of the Holy Spirit. Find that secret place with him, even in the middle of the storm. And he's going to do a work in us, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Hallelujah. Galatians chapter 3, there's a, it's a kind of a, just jumping into you know, a context with a sort of a, a questioning aspect. But the point of it all is this. We began by the Spirit. You didn't come to Christ on your own. You can't come to Jesus without the Holy Spirit. We started off with the Spirit. Let's just continue to walk in the Spirit. Let's not try to do it on our own strength after the fact. we got stuff to do. Of course we do. God will lead us and he'll, he'll help us. He will help you. He will help us to do better. Amen. Man, that's good news. Hallelujah. Well, we're going to jump right into our communion right now. And uh, as the, if you're serving with communion, can you please uh, get going with that? And I'll have the worship team up here. But I'd like us all just to take a moment and stand together. If you can please stand with me. And I'd like to pray for you today. Let's just pray right now. Our loving Heavenly Father, God, so often I start my prayers like that. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name, but you're the God of love. You're the one who loved us, and you, you initiated this whole salvation experience. And we know that, that Jesus, you died on the cross for us, and that you rose, and you rose again, and you sent your Spirit to walk with us and fill us. And Lord, I thank you for the great work that you've done. The work that you've done and are doing in our lives. And I'm praying for my sisters and brothers here today. All across this room. Lord, it's so true. We, we do want to do better, but God help us to focus on knowing you. To focus on that spirit-filled, Holy Ghost activity in our lives kind of thing, not by might, not by power, but by the Spirit of the Lord. Come, Holy Spirit, right now we pray. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill us up and change us, Lord, from the inside. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated.